0: Good morning everyone, my name is Amy, and today's passage is from 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 15 through 17. And how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, good morning. So we're going to talk about how to use the scriptures in child training. But half of you are unmarried. How many are single? All right, just about half, it looks like to me. Well, if you listen carefully, even as a single person, you learn a few things. Now, you've got to listen carefully because I'm not going to make it explicit necessarily, okay? But you will learn how to practically use the scriptures in your own life, You will learn how to practically use the scriptures as you interact with your family and friends. You'll learn a little bit about progressive sanctification and how we are conformed to the image of Christ day by day as we behold his image in the word of God. And of course, you'll learn how to prepare now for the future if the Lord sees fit for you to have a family someday. So, I hope You'll pay attention. Of course, if I were Pastor Dees, I might be tempted to have some kind of a contest like, however many of you single people have the most applications of today's sermon will win a prize. But I'm not going to do that. Okay, so he says, <clears throat> From childhood, Timothy, literally from infancy, you've been acquainted with the sacred writings, which the with the Holy Scriptures, which are able to give you the wisdom that leads to faith in Christ Jesus. Who was it, by the way, who taught Timothy the Scriptures? This can be a little interactive. Who? Right. Right, his mother and his grandmother, right? In 2 Timothy 1.5, I think it's uh, on the screen if you want to jot that down. So... When my youngest daughter, Sophia, was uh, two years old, she was almost three, but technically she was two, Kim, my wife, was in the bathroom, and I was laying on the bed, and Kim asked me if I would try to help her find some implement for her face or her hair or something, and uh, I sighed, huh, as if to say, do I really have to get off the bed and help you? At which point, little Sophia, not quite three years old, couldn't read a lick, standing between us. She said, Daddy, you should do all things without complaining and arguing. <laughs> Two weeks later, I was actually preaching at a church north of Atlanta, and uh, before the meeting, um, we went to a restaurant, and the waitress, after she took the order, brought Sophia a little coloring mat. You know how they do, they bring you a little coloring mat when you're a kid, and some crayons, and you know, you entertain yourself while the food is coming. Well. I noticed that she was like scribbling all over the page and she was not coloring inside the lines. So her college-educated counselor father, who should have known that developmentally she wasn't able to color inside the lines, took a crayon and started trying to teach her how to color inside the line. Well, the the problem was little by little I sort of encroached upon the whole placemat and there was no place for her to write at which point she looked at me and said, Daddy, you should do all things. No, I'm sorry. She said, Daddy, do not forget to do good and to share. (laughs) Now, here she is, right, barely three years old, and she convicted her college-educated father twice. She knew the scriptures, and she knew them well enough to use them. And then he says, All Scripture is God-breathed. It's given by inspiration of God and is profitable for four things, for teaching, for reproof, or as we're going to translate it, for conviction, for correction, and for uh, discipline training in godliness. And that's what I want to take you through today. As much as we can with the time allowed, I want to show you how to apply each of these four uses of Scripture, right? For teaching, conviction, correction, Training in righteousness, they're profitable or they're useful so that the man of God... Now, the man of God there is really talking about the preacher. That's one of the reasons why we believe the Scriptures are sufficient for counseling. But it applies to parents too. Whoever uses the Word of God to shepherd must learn how to use the Scriptures for these four purposes. Okay, step one. The Scriptures are profitable for teaching your children. The Lord says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your might. And these words which I command you today, Mom and Dad, shall be on your hearts. And you shall teach them casually. You shall teach them diligently to your children, and you shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise up. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontals between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. And so, mom and dad, teaching your children the scripture is an imperative for you. It is non-optional. You're obligated to do it. And then, secondly, teaching children is an explicit imperative for you. You've been given some very specific instructions. Now, most people, when they um, when they hear the phrase "teach them diligently," they believe that the scriptures apply to the children. I'm sorry. They believe that the word "them" applies to the children. Teach them diligently. That's not what it says. These words, which I command you today, mom and dad, shall be on your heart, and you shall teach them to your children. Your job is to teach the Scriptures to your children, right? Teach them diligently. The Berkeley version says impress them deeply. The NIV version renders it, impress the Scriptures, impress them on your children. And so what does it mean to teach them diligently? teach the scriptures diligently to impress them on your children well the word the hebrew word actually is related to the number 2 it comes to mean repeat it's really used of a of a uh, sword when it's or a knife when it's sharpened on a stone because this the sword is repeatedly pressed against the stone and it becomes sharper and so that's the idea where to take the scriptures and show our children repeatedly how they must apply the Word of God to their lives, to real life circumstances. Truth must be mingled, must be integrated with life. And so let's take that verse that Sophia quoted to me years ago. Do all things without complaining and arguing. Well, what does that mean practically? Well, you may not murmur or complain, when you don't like your breakfast. You may not murmur and complain when you're told to stop playing. You may not murmur or complain when you're told to go to bed. You may not murmur or complain when your will conflicts with God's will. But rather, you must be thankful that God is working all things together for your good, through your disappointments, to conform you to the image of Christ. Now what exactly does it mean to teach and apply the scriptures to your children when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise up? Does God want you to have four different separate catechisms every day? No. When you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise up, basically means everywhere. God wants you to apply the scriptures to the lives of your children, very practically, in all kinds of circumstances, in all kinds of situations, anywhere and everywhere that life takes you. That's the big idea. In other words, you're to teach your children the scriptures in the middle, you're in the middle, in the center, in the midst of their lives. You bring the scriptures to them. They had a conflict at school, you bring the scriptures to them. They have a hard time with a particular sin pattern, you bring the scriptures to them. Whatever it is that they're facing, it's your job to show them how the Bible practically relates to their lives. Now, what are the benefits of teaching in the milieu, teaching your children in the midst of their lives? First of all, children learn better, faster, and more eagerly when they learn this way. We tend to learn more eagerly, more easily, when we can see the value of what we have learned to, or what we are learning to life. I, I, I always did terribly in history when I was a kid because I never saw the value of like studying what happened years and years ago. And then as I got older, I realized there really is value to me personally. I could learn from the, the wise things that were done throughout the years, throughout the ages. I could learn through the foolish things that were done. And so as I was able to connect what I was learning in history to my own life, all of a sudden I had more interest and I began to appreciate history. Second, children are able to put what they're learning into practice immediately because they're learning for the sake of doing. Very important. Learning for the sake of doing. There's two views of learning. There's the Greek, the Greek view, or the academic view, that says knowledge is for knowledge's sake. Knowledge, or learning, is a fact to be known. Is how many letters can I get after my name and make lots of money and impress lots of people? And then there's the biblical view, or the Hebrew view, of learning, which is learning for the sake of implementation, learning to observe, right? It's how can I put what I've learned into practice? How can I use the things that I'm learning to minister to others, to love my neighbor, and to glorify God? That's the biblical view. Go therefore into all the world and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to know all things that I've commanded you. Is that what it says? Teaching them to observe all things that I commanded you. The things that you've learned from me, Timothy, in the presence of many witnesses, the same commit to faithful men, will keep it to themselves and disclose it only when they have an opportunity to demonstrate to other people how smart they are. Is that what it says? The things that you've learned from me teach to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Blessed are those, Jesus said, blessed are those who hear the word of God, period? No, who hear the word of God and what? Do it. Observe it. Colossians 1 9 and 10. And so, from the day we heard of it, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you might be filled with knowledge of His will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Why? That you may walk, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. You see, it's about doing, it's about implementation. Now, what exactly does it mean to bind the scriptures upon your hands and upon your forehead? The gate, the gates of your house, the doorway of your house, the gates of your city, the doorway of your house. Well, again, it's metaphorical language here, right? You were to bind them as, this is a simile, right? To bind them as a sign on your hands. The scriptures are to govern our actions. That's the idea. They shall be as frontals on your forehead. The scriptures are to govern our thoughts. Again, we should teach our children that the scriptures apply to all of life. I have seen an end to all perfection, but your commandments are exceedingly broad. To write them on the doorposts of your house. The word of God applies when you walk outside your house and you're in the city. The Word of God applies on the, uh, I'm sorry, on the gates is in the city, on um, on the doorpost is in the house, outside of the house, inside the city, outside of the city, everywhere the scriptures are applicable. And mom and dad, it's your job to make clear to your children how the truth of God's Word that you're teaching them applies to their little lives. Step two. The scriptures are profitable for convicting your scripture. Now, the word says in your in many of your Bibles say reprove, but the Greek word is the word convict. Now, you say, isn't conviction the work of the Holy Spirit? Yes, uh, 2 Timothy 4.2. Um, I'm sorry. Um, yeah, John 16.8 says, when he, the Holy Spirit, will come, he will convict the world of sin, right? So, The the Spirit does convict, and the Word convicts, right? It says in 2 Timothy 4.2, preach the Word, be ready in season, out of season, convict, reprove, and exhort with great patience and careful instruction. And so, the Spirit convicts, the Word convicts, 2 Timothy 3.16, and then here's an example where one person convicts another. It's a verb. So in our passage, it's the same word, but it's in the noun form. It's profitable for conviction. But sometimes preachers have to convict. So I'm up here, and I'm trying to convict many of you in, in the sense of wanting you to perhaps do a better job of using the Scriptures practically when you bring up your children in the disappointed instruction of the Lord. In Matthew 18... If your brother has something against you, go and tell him his fault. It's the same word, it's a verbal form. Conviction is something that one person also does to another, and as a parent, you have to use the scriptures, not only to teach your children what God's standards are, but to convict them when they do something wrong. It's something, again, that one person does to another. It's a verbal form of this word. Now, what is conviction? Well, there are different common definitions of conviction. We use the word in English at least this way. I have an assured personal belief about I have a conviction about telling the truth. We use sometimes the word when we speak of feelings or guilt about an unrepentant sin. I'm under conviction for my addiction to nicotine or whatever it happens to be. And then in our culture, we use it in a sense of an indictment for a crime. crime. He was convicted for murder. So how do you suppose the word "convict" here, conviction, is meant to be understood in the passage before us today? It's the third definition, a legal indictment for a crime. Listen to the book of Revelation. Uh, chapter three, I'll begin reading in verse 15. "I know your works, you are neither hot or cold. I would that you were either cold or hot, so because you are lukewarm and neither hot or cold, I will." vomit you, spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, I have need of nothing, and you did not know. The ESV says, not realizing that you are wretched and pitiable and poor and blind and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich and white garments that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and salve to anoint your eyes. So then... So that you may see. Those whom I love, I convict and discipline. So be zealous and repent. The Laodiceans didn't realize the extent to which they were sinning. They did not know how bad they were. And therefore, they didn't know the extent to which they really needed to change. And often your children do not understand, they do not know, they don't realize the extent to which they're sinning, and therefore they don't understand how crucial it is for them to change. And that's where the scriptures come in. Now at this point some of you are thinking, boy, Lou, if I I use the scriptures that way with my children, aren't they gonna grow up to hate the Bible? Would they be afraid of it? And the answer to that is a flat, yes they will. If you only use the scriptures to teach and convict and you don't use them to correct and to train in righteousness, they'll, they'll grow up with a very distorted view of scripture. But if they understand that the scriptures are useful to correct their problems and to train them in righteousness so that the problems don't come back, that's a different story. They'll probably grow to love and appreciate the Word of God, especially if you're showing them how practical it is for their lives. Now, there are two essential elements of conviction I just want to mention briefly. First, if you're going to do this, you've got to know which portions of Scripture the Holy Spirit put in the book to bring conviction to your child. I mean, I'm a biblical counselor, and so I really believe the Bible has the answers to all non-working, non-organic problems. And as a parent, I hope you have that conviction. If it's a counseling book, it certainly is a parenting book, right? So you've got to know which portions of the Scripture may be used. Have you ever heard this one? Daddy or mommy, I can't eat my spinach or my beets or my turnips or whatever. Well, what Scripture might you want to remind them of in a context like that? Well, um, I like this one. It says, we can, because of, um, because of our relationship with Christ, we are now able to do things that we didn't want to do. Or we could use uh, Philippians 4.8. You can't say can't as a Christian, right? I can do all things through him who strengthens you. And if mom and dad tells you you must eat your spinach, then you should assume it's God's will for you to eat your spinach, and that therefore if it is God's will that you can do all things through him who strengthens you. Secondly, you must be able to explain or unpack the scripture portions that you're using. Um, Do you remember the? disciples on the road to Amascus, after the, the Lord revealed himself to them, they said, did not our heart burn within us? And then he uses a really interesting word, when he opened the scriptures to us. That's what we're talking about, opening the scriptures and showing your children how practical they are for life. So you've got to have the ability to explain the portions that you're using. In other words, the idea is you don't want to dispense Scripture like a Pez dispenser dispenses candy. You want to minister the Word of God to the hearts and minds and life of your children. Now, obviously, this takes time. This is not a quick thing. And when you have a stubborn habit, it may be night after night after night of sitting down together, maybe even as a family, and understanding everything or much of what the Bible says about the sin of lying or... Um, rebellion or anger or fear or whatever. You know, it's not just one little moment of discipline. Actually, let me mention that. The Bible says the rod and reproof give wisdom, right? God never intended discipline to be used apart from the scriptures, the rod and reproof. It takes time. It takes communication with your children if you're going to effectively minister the word of God to their hearts. Some guidelines for administering reproof. I'm gonna have to run through these because I'm slipping away with the time here. First of all, examine your motives. Your motives at this point should not be to um, embarrass your kids or to get them to stop annoying you or other selfish kinds of things. Your motive should be to restore them, right? That's the goal. Secondly, it's really important that you use biblical terminology when you convict your children of sin. You don't even have to quote the whole verse. Just identifying their sinful behavior in biblical terms is usually enough if they identify it with Scripture, and often they do because you're teaching them the Scriptures, right? Often, enough to do, often sufficient enough to do the job. For example, to tell a child that he's too shy is not as likely to bring conviction as will showing him the relationship between his bashful behavior and a sin of pride or selfishness or fear. Third, choose the right time. Solomon says, Ecclesiastes 3:7, there's a time to keep silent, a time to speak. And the time to administer reproof is when the other person can give you his undivided attention, right? First rule of the learner is you've got to, the learner has to attend with interest upon the subject matter. So he's got to, you've got to have his attention. And so sometimes it's immediate and sometimes you may have to wait a little bit. Third, choose the right word, Proverbs 15, uh, words, choose the right words, Proverbs 15, 28. The heart of the righteous studies how to answer, ponders how to answer. You know, sometimes when the kids do something wrong and you're angry, the best thing you can do is to, uh, is to stop and think. I remember one time my daughter did something and I was really, really angry. And uh, I said, go to your room and prepare for spanking. And she said, okay, dad, but like, aren't you too angry to spank me right now? I said, I am angry. Go to your room and pray for me. But, I mean, you've got to do it gently, right? You want to make sure that your anger is under control. You don't you know, whatever the form of discipline is you use, you don't want to rashly admit, give me your phone for three years. You know, I mean, that's not, right, what we're supposed to do here. The reproof should be given with a gentle spirit. Galatians 6.1, in a spirit of meekness. You know, reproof is really important. Conviction is really important. That's what I have to do for a living. And... uh, I get uncomfortable sometimes, believe it or not, some of you don't believe that, but I mean, I really do get uncomfortable having to convict people. Now, obviously, sometimes, you know, um, I can use a two-by-four. I'm a two-five-by-four person. Just hit me over the Bible, leave me alone, and I'll be all right. But I can't do that with everybody. Sometimes I have to ask a question, right? I can't go in the front door. I have to go in the back door. I have to go in the side window or something, okay? So there's lots and lots of different ways to convict people just by asking them a question. Do you ever stop and consider that if you pursue this unbiblical divorce, you're going to be demonstrating to God and the whole world that you have a hard heart. I mean, I, I can give you a dozen of them. But the fact of the matter is there's a lot of ways to bring conviction. Well, one particular day, I was counseling this guy, and um, I hit him pretty hard. And the uh, session was over, and, you know, you wonder sometimes, well, how did I do Did I hit him too hard. Was I, was I kind enough? Was I compassionate enough with him? Uh... <clears throat> I walk out of the office and uh, there's a check turned upside down on my secretary's office, uh, on her desk, and uh, she said, "You need to look at that." And so I picked up the check. I turned it over. He had written a ten thousand dollar check to the ministry. Bible says, "Reprove a wise man, and he will love you." That was a very wise man. All right. Step number three: the scriptures are profitable for correcting your children. Right. You've got to correct them. Correction presupposes the existence of a problem in someone's life. It presupposes that something is wrong and it's got to be fixed. It, it literally can be said to stand up, we use it in English, to put something back on its feet, to stand, stand something straight again. That's the idea. We are going to make wrong, that make right, that which is wrong. So, you function as a prosecuting attorney when you're doing the convicting, but when when you move from convicting to correction, you're functioning as a skilled surgeon. So, a couple of suggestions here. First, you've got to identify the patterns of sin with which your child is struggling. We all have our own unique styles of sinning. Each one of us is tempted, the Bible says in James, when we're drawn away and enticed by our own Lust, And so you may struggle with, I don't know, anger. The person next to you might struggle with fear. The person in front of you may struggle with lying. The person behind you will fill in the blank. The fact is we all have our own unique styles of sinning. And we've got to, when we're dealing with our children, we have to look for the, for the big picture. You know, what's the pattern of sin in our child's life? So many parents try to convict their children of individual sin, all the while without without, uh, identifying the overall pattern of pride or fear or uh, lying, selfishness, rebellion, whatever. And in the process of doing that, they don't see the, the forest through the trees. They spend all their time trying to put out this little fire and this little fire and this little fire not realizing that on the other side of the forest, there's an arson setting fires is quicker than you can put them out. And so that's why you have to zoom out. Don't be myopic. Try to look at the pattern of sin because one sin or or one identified pattern um, covers a multitude of sin. Okay, so you have a child who struggles with anger. Well, by helping him deal with his anger, you're also helping him be a better communicator. You're also helping him get along with others better. You're teaching him principles of of conflict resolution. You're helping him deal with his folly because the Bible connects anger and foolishness. You uh, maybe even helping him with bitterness, with depression, with rebellion. So I'm not saying don't look at the small stuff, but zoom out, look at the pattern. So you identify the particular areas of struggle that the child has, that's step number one. Then step number two, You go to the scriptures and you identify the portions of scripture that are specifically there to address the correction of your child's sin. You need to find those passages that deal with correction. And again, what I suggest is that you look for those passages that address the specific things that need to be put off. You know the Bible talks about putting off and putting on, right, The, the Bible? Well, the idea of correction, the big idea there is putting off. Putting off sin. The big idea with discipline, training, and righteousness is putting on the biblical alternative. So you identify the patterns, then you go to the scripture, you find those scriptures that deal with the particular sin that your child has to put off, put on, put off the old man, be renewed in the spirit of your mind, put on the new man, right? Colossians, uh, uh, Ephesians uh, 4. And then you begin to inculcate the child with the truth of God's word. Because at the end of the day, if your child is a Christian, he's not really gonna be able to change if he's not a Christian. And by the way, Eunice and Lois taught Timothy the scriptures before he was a Christian, right? They're able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation. So the more scripture you have in your heart, the more the Holy Spirit's gonna be able to work. And if you're not a Christian, you have scripture in your heart, same thing applies. The Spirit will work through the word. The Spirit always works through the word. So, you've got to explain to your children the biblical basis for the correction. Third recommendation, consider the answers to the following questions to help ensure that you're thoroughly correcting your child. Does my child need to change his mind about anything? You know, the Greek word for repentance is metanoia. we typically translate it to change one's mind. But if you look at it etymologically, meta means, again, noise has to do with your thinking, with your mind. And so really what it means is to think again or to rethink something. And that's the idea. When we repent, the Old Testament word is to change the directions, you're going in this direction and then you turn around and go in this direction. The New Testament word you, is you rethink things, you change your mind, you put both of those together and you have a really good understanding of what repentance is. And by the way, the word, repent, the word correction encapsulates this idea of correction. Question number two, have I discussed with my child the thoughts and motives of his heart? Hebrews 4.12, the word of God is the discerner of the thoughts and motives of the heart. You have a responsibility as a parent not only to teach your children how to act like Christians, right? how to talk like Christians, have Christian attitudes, but how to think and how to be motivated like a Christian. That's your job. So it's important that you don't just deal with the outward behavior, but you talk to them. Honey, when you did that, what was going through your mind? What was it that you wanted right before you said that terrible thing to your mom? Has he confessed his sin to and asked forgiveness of all appropriate parties? The Bible talks a lot about the importance of having a good conscience. He says, if you don't have one, you could shipwreck your faith. Does my child understand what God expects him to do the next time he or she finds himself in the same or similar circumstances? You know, and this really bleeds over now into, into step four. Scriptures are useful for training your children in righteousness. But when we would unpack things that the kids would do wrong, um... And by the way, in, in our house, it was not just the kids. I mean, we have to let the kids talk to us about our sin. I mean, I hope you do that, right? Obviously, Sophie, you know, nailed me <laughs> when she was three years old. So I mean, that's, that's the way it works in the Priolo um, household. But I would like to give them, after we unpacked what was wrong with their behavior, two or three or maybe even four, if I could be that creative, alternative ways to respond. Next time mom says that, or next time your sister does that, or next time your teacher does that, or your friend at school does that, how could you respond in a more biblical way? Well, I don't know, well, how about this? Eh, I don't think that works. that's me. How about that? Yeah, I could do that. How about thus and so? Yeah, that might work. Oh, I just thought of one, Dad. You know, and so, I mean, again, I want them to have the idea, the understanding that there's more, <laughs> there's more than one way to skin a catfish biblically. And the more their repertoire, their arsenal of ways to respond when they're in the crunch, when they're being tempted, increases, the greater the likelihood the Spirit is going to, well, the Spirit's going to help them either way, but the greater the likelihood that they're going to be able to pull back one of these things and begin to practice the biblical alternatives. All right, step four, discipline, training, and righteousness. Remember, this is the put on. Why is training so necessary? I mean, if I've taken my children through the first three steps, through teaching conviction and correction, you might be wondering, why bother with the discipline training? I mean, the problem is corrected, right? Well, maybe. But remember, so often when parenting, we're talking about patterns. We're talking about habits. We're talking about not just correcting a little uh, mistake that was made. We're talking about undoing a pattern of rebellion or pride or lying or selfishness or anger or whatever it happens to be, fear or whatever, right? And so the idea behind discipline, training, and righteousness is you practice the biblical alternatives over and over again until it becomes second nature, It becomes just as easy, just as automatic, just as comfortable for you to respond biblically as it has in the past for you to respond in a sinful way. That's the big idea. You know, as a counselor, many of the people I counsel, they come in and they come in to see me because they're in pain. And we take them through the same step I use in counseling. I mean, if you think about those of you who see me, you know, that's really what we've done, right? Teaching, conviction, correction, training. Well, somewhere in the middle of correction, the pain goes away. The pain that impelled them to come into the office. And so, they're tempted to leave. Well, I've got to hold them back and say, no, wait a minute, You know, let's, let's make sure we continue practicing the right thing until this becomes second nature for you. So let's talk a minute about habits. When you think of the word habit, what comes to mind? Probably think about a negative thing, right? Habit's a terrible thing. Habit's a blessing. The ability to develop habits are a blessing from God. I mean, think about what life would be like if you couldn't develop habits. Ladies, what would it be like if every day you had to put your makeup on without the aid of habit? Every day you'd likely spend hours trying to put on your face like many of you do, you know, when you put on your clothes. right? You first have to rummage through the vanity to collect the right cosmetics from the entire collection. Next you have to figure out how to open up all those jars and bottles and tubes and other unusually shaped containers. You'd have to relearn every day how to skillfully apply all that stuff with a dozen variety of those funny looking applicators. Then you'd have to experiment with the exact amount, in the exact shade, in the exact places to give you the exact look. And you doubtless, as I said, want to try two or three different options because you know, you've never done it before. You don't know what looks best, so you have to keep on doing it every morning because you don't have a habit. You don't know what to, what to do next. But now, because of habit, you can perform this highly complex, artistic, creative work of art while you're listening to the radio talking to your children, giving instructions to your husband, or listening for his instructions, or as some of you do while you're driving your car. Don't do that, please. And fellas, what if you could not remember how to tie that double Windsor, or operate that car, or drive that uh, golf ball? or cast that fly, or fire that rifle, or shoot that basket, or worse, what if you forgot how to work the remote control? How much desire would you have to do those things? They always require the exertion of tremendous amounts of energy. But now, because of habit, you can do these things quickly, easily, and unconsciously. So the word training here is the Greek word gymnazo, from which we get the word gymnasium, gymnastics. So, let's suppose I decide that I'm going to start lifting weights. My girls would love for me to decide to do that, by the way. So I go into the gym, you know, and uh, I I I look at this configuration of weights that are already set up, and uh, I, I do the math in my head. It's like 90 pounds, and I say I should be able to do that. So I reach down. And I curl it, you know, and I'm struggling. And I try to press it, and I, uh, and I can't do it. And so I recalibrate the thing, and I say, okay, I'm going to start with 60 pounds. So I work with 60 pounds for a while, and, you know, after a few weeks, few months, my muscles get stronger. They don't get bigger yet after a couple of months, but they get stronger. So then I go to 70 pounds, you know. And then I'm starting to see a little definition there. And I work with that for a while, and then I put up to 80 pounds and 90 pounds. And anyway, two years later, I walk into the gym, and, you know, I'm up to... Uh, I'm up to 200 pounds, say. I know that's aggressive, but just bear with me. And I'm already pressing, you know, 200 pounds. And I walk in it, and there's that 90 pound barbell that I started with, that 90 pound configuration. And I show myself. And I wonder if I can. I'm, I'm pressing 200 now. I wonder if I can do this. So I reach down with one hand, and I curl it, and I struggle. But with one hand, I'm able to get the 90 pounds over my head. That's the idea exercise, train yourself for the purpose of godliness. And that's what Christian character is all about, right? It's about developing character. We practice, and of course this is all done by the Holy Spirit, but we've gotta collaborate with the Holy Spirit. I don't want anyone to leave here thinking I'm saying this is something we can do without God's help, without the word of God, of course not. You know, we do it, the Spirit does it through us, but unlike justification, which is a work of God that he does by himself, Sanctification is something we got to collaborate with. We've got to cooperate with the Spirit. We've got to do the things that the Bible says we've got to do to become more and more like Christ. And the most important thing is to get the Word of God in our hearts. Whether we read it, study it, memorize it, come to church and hear it, listen to podcasts, that's what the Spirit will use to change us. And so when you think about Christian character, when you think about wanting your children to be like Christ, to be conformed to the image of Christ, what you're talking about, really, is them, little by little, looking into the mirror of God's word and becoming more like Christ, right? We all, with unveiled face, as in a mirror, behold the image of the Lord, and are being transformed by his word, by his spirit, even by the spirit of the Lord, right? From glory to glory, from one level of brightness or maturity to another level of maturity, to another level of maturity, to another level of maturity. That's the big idea with training in righteousness. Want to train them to develop the biblical alternative to the sinful flaw that has ensnared them so that hopefully, in time, the problem will not come back. Okay, practical considerations for teaching the Bible to children. First, begin your children on a regular program of Scripture memory. Again, if you want to find out how she did it, ask Kim. Kim's the one who's responsible, who taught the girls how to read, uh, memorize Scripture before they could read. There's simply nothing more effective to help train your children in righteousness than this. The more of God's Word your children have Internalize the more God's Spirit will have to work with as He sanctifies them, as He leads them to Christ in the first place, and as He sanctifies, sanctifies them once they become believers. I can hardly imagine a better way for a parent to cooperate with the work of the Holy Spirit than to give the Spirit His most important weapon, which is the Word of God. The sword of the Spirit is the Word of God, right? What's interesting about this verse? This is uh, Galatians 6 17, right? Usually, the word-for-word word in the Greek is lagas. But here, it's rhema, right? It's, and, and the word "rema" is the spoken word, right? Rhemao means to speak. The, uh, the verbal form, uh, the, the noun form, means to, uh, also means, has to do with spoken. So the sword of the Spirit which is the word of God, right? Not the logos, but the rhema. is not the word that you read in your Bible, per se. I mean, it is. But I think what he's talking about here is the word that's in your heart, and it's on the tip of your tongue, so you have it when you need it. That is the sword of the Spirit. But my children can't memorize. Well, memorization is more a measure of Uh, DQ, that it is IQ. It's not your intelligence, it's your quotient, it's your desire quotient. It's a matter of what you value, what your child values, what he uh, believes is necessary for life and happiness, what he loves. Jesus said, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Let me ask you something. Would your children be more motivated to memorize God's word if I offered them $300 for every chapter they memorized? Would you be more mem- more motivated to memorize the scripture if I made that deal with you? I would if I could, but I can't. But would you? According to the Bible, that will be a small reward for your efforts. Listen to Psalm 119.72. The law of your mouth is better to me than thousands of gold and silver pieces. Second, be sure to reference the appropriate passages in your parenting. Explaining to children the biblical directives to put off a specific pattern of behavior and to put on its biblical alternative helps your children realize that it's not you who are asking them to do this, it's God. By referencing the scripture, then all of a sudden, it's not. this is not primarily what mom wants you to do. It's what pleases God or it's what displeases God if you don't. And that's why the scriptures are so important. Even in marriage, I mean, if, if you even saw how Kim and I argue sometimes, I mean, you know, we, we try to let the scriptures trump and have the final say in our disputes, in our decisions. And then third... Let them see Jesus. In other words, proclaim the gospel to your children often. Um, you know, whether they succeed, thank the Lord for giving me the Holy Spirit who helped me to do it, whether they failed, um, what forgiveness is all about, even sometimes helping them to, to um, question whether or not they really are in the faith, right? God is holy. God is just. God's justice requires him to punish our sin. And the minimum penalty for our sin is death, according to the Bible. But God is loving and merciful, wants to forgive. So how does God in love forgive us of our sins, work it out so that we can be forgiven of our sins, when His holiness and justice requires Him to punish us for our sins? He wouldn't be just if He just let us off the hook. Not according to the Bible. How's He gonna do that? Well, the answer is found in a substitute. If he could find someone who didn't have to die for his own sins, someone who was perfect, and who would be willing to pay the penalty for the sins of whoever the substitute was, the the guilty party, then God's justice could be satisfied. And that's why Christ came. Jesus Christ came to take the blame for our sins that we could get the credit for his righteousness. see, that's what it takes to get to heaven. It's not just that you have to have your sins forgiven. You have to be, like, totally righteous. You have to have a gazillion dollars worth of righteousness in your bank account. You're not fit for heaven. And so that's why he died. He died to give us eternal life, that by putting our faith in him, we might have eternal life. So does that mean everyone's going to heaven? No. For God so loved the world... That he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. What does believing in him mean? Well, lots of people believe in Jesus. Lots of people believe that Jesus is the son of God. So lots of people would tell you that Jesus died to pay the penalty for sinners. But that kind of faith is not the kind of faith that gets you salvation, right? They're humanly speaking. We have to believe that when Jesus died, He died for me. He is my substitute. You know, so even when you discipline your children, that's another opportunity to point out to them how God is just and how punishment is a biblical concept, and how we all—if we you ever kids, kids ever say to you, "That's not fair," I mean, do you want fair? Fair is you go to hell. So, the point is, we put our trust in Christ that he was perfect, that he died to pay the penalty for our sins, he credits us at that point with his righteousness, makes us fit to heaven, he takes the blame for all the sin we ever committed and through him our sins are forgiven in the eyes of a holy God. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for this passage, so much here. why this, this passage really does teach us why you gave us scripture and it applies to our lives, it applies to our friends, and especially it pl- applies to our children. So please give us grace, give us wisdom as we try to teach the word of God to our children, to convict our children with the scriptures, to, tr- to correct them lovingly, kindly, gently from the scriptures and to train them in righteousness that they might come to know you As their Lord and Savior, and may little by little, day by day, week by week, month by month, year by year, through the power of the Holy Spirit, become more and more like our Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. And all God's people said, amen.